This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books Network. Um, my name is Geert, your host for today, and with us is Dr. Matthias Lese. He's a senior researcher for government, governance and technology at the Center for Security Studies, if I'm saying this correctly, at the ETH Institute in Zurich. Uh, welcome, Matthias. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, pleasure to be here. Yeah, great that you came, that we found the time. So we will be discussing the book that he wrote together with his, with his colleague, Dr. Simon Eckbert from the Technische Universität in Berlin, called Criminal Futures, Predictive Policing and Everyday Police Work, which is published in the uh, Routledge Studies in Policing and Society series um, just this year. Before we dive into the book, uh, Matthias, could you maybe uh, tell us a bit more about who you are, professionally speaking, and uh, what your broader research usually looks like? Yes, absolutely. So um, my disciplinary background is actually international relations. Um, but uh, back in the day when I was doing my master's, I was uh, working as a student assistant in the, uh, what was it called actually, Institute for Prevention and Security Research. Um, at the University of Hamburg. Um, and so this is where I first got in touch with um, criminological research. So we, we had a project back then, which was engaging um, societal attitudes towards uh, surveillance and control technologies in Germany. And uh, I was quite fascinated by that whole thematic around you know technology, policing, security. Um, and so I I went on to tubing, I, I pursued my, my PhD in international relations, um, but the topic stayed with me. And so did my kind of curiosity in criminology. And now, you know, several years later, um, I took the opportunity to do this research project, uh, project together with Simon, um, because I was always fascinated about the impact of technology on security organizations, right? So more broadly speaking, I look into uh, data matters in, in law enforcement and, and border control. Um, but in this particular project, um, we really applied a, a criminological lens, so to say, to study how you know traditional police work 
um, like, you know, internal security is being transformed through the introduction of new technologies. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And um, what made you then decide uh, to actually start up this project like now or well now in the past couple of years? Yeah, I suppose like, you know, most research projects, um, it was uh, more or less pure coincidence. <laughs> um, I just had started my job here at ETH Zurich as a senior researcher when there was the, the first kind of, you know, media attention being drawn to predictive policing in, in the German speaking world. Um, and so it turned out that the Zurich Municipal Police Department had just started a, a trial run with Precops, which is a, a, a commercial software package built by a, by a German company. Um, and so I picked up the phone. Um, I asked them, you know, what they were doing and whether it would be possible to, uh, to have a look and, you know, speak with some people. Um, and they were surprisingly open and they told me to just come by. Um, I looked at Google Maps and it turns out that the headquarters is just, you know, a couple hundred meters down the street. And that was that. <laughs> That's excellent. And, and your collaboration with, uh, with Dr. Eckert? Yeah, we actually, um, so based on that, that first encounter with the Zurich Municipal Police, I designed a research project, um, an empirical project for, I don't know, two or three years, um, however long it would take to, to get a good, a really good understanding, a really good grasp of, of what's happening in the field. And so I took that research design to a workshop in Germany. Um, and there I met Simon for the first time. We didn't know each other before. Um, and it turned out that he had also just started a, a research project on predictive policing in Germany. And my design and his design were quite similar. And so it turns out we had been reading the, the same literature. We kind of had the same questions in mind. And yeah, so we decided to join forces. And um, so instead of one project looking at Germany and one project looking at Switzerland, we had a bigger project that looked at uh, Germany and Switzerland. Which made a lot of sense because, as I said before, um, at the time there was one commercial software package available that was used in both Switzerland and Germany. So I think it gave us a pretty good, um, I mean, it, it wasn't a, a formally comparative perspective, but we could actually um, see the, the different practices in, in different police departments, um, you know, not along the lines of um, different national backgrounds, but more in terms of, you know, how different organizations dealt with technological change. And so I think overall, this, this gave us a really good perspective on how predictive policing technology um, has impacted very concrete practices of crime prevention, but how it has also impacted larger trajectories of change in police departments as they now try to get ready for the future, try to overhaul their technical infrastructures, their means of, of data analysis, they try to build up expertise and so on. So I think overall, um, this has been a, a really fascinating research project and um, I'm actually quite happy with the book. Understandable. Um, maybe maybe um, in terms of methodology, what did you do and, and maybe also what was the, um, how did you divide tasks with your, with your colleague? Yeah, so overall, um, we pursued a, a qualitative approach, um, which means that <clears throat> our prime intention was to go into the field and to kind of really retrace the perspective and the experiences of those people involved. 
And so methodologically speaking, um, we combined uh, three different methods. So first and foremost, we interviewed people. I think in the end, we ended up with uh, more than 60 interviews um, with you know, people from the police, but also from uh, private companies, um, tax suppliers, um, on all strategic and, and operational levels. Um, and then we, we complemented these interviews with ethnographic observations, which means that we visited police stations, we were allowed to kind of you know, spend the day or a couple of hours with the people operating the software, doing the, um, the predictions, uh, crafting the memos, and so on. Um, and these ethnographic observations formed the, the second um, empirical data part. And the third data part was then uh, document analysis. So we collected uh, more than, I think, 300 documents, um, publicly available documents, but also police internal documents. And so combining these different methods and these different uh, types of data, um, I feel really gave us a, a good overall you know, perspective on, on what was happening. So um, we kind of triangulated, um, in a sense, to, to really see um, what what the essence was um if you want to put it that way did you did you also get to join any uh, any patrols uh unfortunately not um mm. but we were able to speak with a lot of uh, uh, patrol forces um to really also incorporate their perspective on, on the whole um on the whole change basically mm. could you could you maybe give us a bit of because you also have um uh you also sketched the development of predictive policing as such. Could you maybe give us a bit of historical background of, um, of, of current predictive policing and maybe also how is uh, predictive policing, as you understand it, different from the other um, uh, deterrence-oriented methods like uh, hotspot policing or uh, community-oriented policing or so? Yeah, so first of all, I think we need to make a, a basic distinction. So... Predictive policing can mean a lot of things, um, but essentially, I think it can mean two different, or two two main different things. Um, the first variant of predictive policing is geared towards people. Um, this is something that we see in the U.S., um, in the U.K. partly, but also in other parts of the world, um, and this is a an approach that tries to identify people who might you know, become criminals in the future or who might, be, um, who might become uh, uh, likely victims of, of crime in the future, and then to intervene with those people on an individual basis. So in other words, uh, this might be described as risk profiling. Um, this is something that is not done in Europe, um, at least not on a broad scale. Um, but the kind of predictive policing that we find in Europe is a variant that targets space and time. So basically, it starts from the assumption that um, certain types of crime follow patterns in time and space. And these patterns can be identified through the analysis of data. And so from the analysis of, of past distributions of crime in time and space, um, there can be a, a prediction generated. Um, so basically, um, you take the past and you try to extrapolate it into the future in more or less dynamic forms, and you try to identify certain spaces, certain you know neighborhoods, streets, 
that might be uh, prone to higher crime levels um, in a certain time frame, say 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours. Um, and then you try to come up with, um, with interventions. So basically crime prevention measures. Um, in our case, um, the pre-cop software primarily targets burglary, residential burglary, which is uh, a phenomenon that I would say is actually quite primed for such an approach because uh, it happens at scale. That means there is a lot of data available. There is also a lot of research available. So we do have established criminological knowledge, um, primarily in the form of um, uh, near repeat um, offense theory, so or near repeat victimization theory that basically says um, if there's a, a burglary within a certain area, then it's actually quite likely that there's going to be follow-up burglaries close uh, close by in the same area. So there's a certain you know repetition pattern in residential burglary, um, and this can of course be be operationalized and used um, to intervene into those patterns as they unfold. Right. So the the aim of the police here is to create a deterrence by you know sending out more patrols sending out these patrols in a more targeted fashion to you know show their presence and to you know signal to potential criminals that the risk of being caught and arrested would be far too high so the idea is of course that criminals do act in a you know certain rationalized way they they kind of make a um a bargain um and they kind of weigh in the the risk and the rewards and if the risk um gets too high then they opt not to um not to commit any offenses um i mean it's, it's pretty simple actually um and so I think when we look at predictive policing from the intervention perspective, then it's, um, and I mean, that there's actually a, an academic debate about that, whether it can be clearly distinguished from approaches such as intelligence-led policing. Um, some people say, you know, there's not a clear distinction. Um, and I think actually what we retrace in the book is that there's um, quite a lot of continuity when it comes to situational crime prevention, right? So the approach, you know, goes back uh, to the 1970s, 1980s, um, and it has always um, incorporated the identification of, you know, certain areas that might be more susceptible to crime. And then, you know, there's environmental um, crime prevention where you kind of target the environmental factors such as lighting or such as you know um, kind of um, um, spots that that could be easily um, you know used by criminals for uh, for robbery for pickpocketing um, so in that sense we see a growth of um, you know surveillance cameras um, we see a kind of a re remodeling of, of many um, urban areas um, to kind of reduce the, the crime risk. And in a sense, of course, predictive policing does follow a, a similar strategy. You know, it, it doesn't target the, the built environment, 
but um, it does target the environment by creating more visibility and creating more deterrences. But it does so in a more flexibilized way, right? So you send in uh, police patrols, you run awareness campaigns in the neighborhood, um, you know, you um, kind of run uh, traffic controls at, you know, critical junctions, uh, public transport, and so on. So you have very targeted interventions um, that try to reduce the crime risk in a certain um, neighborhood, a certain area for a specific time frame. So I think, um, as I said, there is a, a quite long lineage actually here. Um, situational crime prevention theory, um, as I said, is a, is a quite well-established um, criminological theory. Um, and what predictive policing does, I think, for the, for the first time is to scale up these ideas. Right, so based on the idea that nowadays we have enough data available and we have the technological means to um, to analyze these data in automated ways that you know speed up things, um, the idea here is that you know you take established ideas, you take established strategies, and you speed them up, and you make them you know you scale them up and you speed them up, um, making them more applicable and uh, you know, allegedly more easily to, to integrate into um, policing practices. Um, and this is, of course, where we kind of step in with a book and uh, we say, look, um, it is not that easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, maybe maybe describe this um, this socio-technical complex or uh, the, the socio-technical system. Why is this such an important concept for you? Yeah, it is an important concept or it is the key concept in the book, actually because I think it gives us from a social science perspective um, a lot of, um, you know, new possibilities in terms of how to how to conduct our research. Because, and I, I think I got to step back a, a, a little here um, and start by saying that, you know, a lot of social science research when it comes to technology tends to incorporate um, a, sort, a certain, you know, technological determinism, right? So technology is understood as something that, you know, um, kind of comes in from the outside and um, it has a, a kind of a, a force on its own and, you know, it, it does things um, and it is kind of assumed that, you know, technology um, does what it's supposed to do. Um, but science and technology studies actually, you know, going back to the, to the late uh, 1980s or so, um, have demonstrated time and again that this is not the case, right? So, and we also know kind of similar things from, from organizational sociology, for instance. So, you know, looking at organizations and how they incorporate new technologies is always likely to create friction, right? So um, any kind of, from an organizational perspective, any kind of change is likely to be met with resistance. Um, it is kind of likely that people reappropriate technologies in their everyday practice. So they, they use them in unforeseen ways, you know, creating kind of unintended consequences and so on. And so this, this brings me to this, to this idea of socio-technical systems, where you step away from the idea that technology could be dealt with in an isolated fashion, but rather you put it into, um, larger social and organizational contexts. And you look at the relations that the technology forms 
with different parts of its environment. And I think this is particularly pertinent um, when it comes to complex organizations such as police departments, right, where you have a, a high level of functional differentiation, um, lots of you know specialized uh, knowledge and specialized expertise that is distributed among different uh, units, and these units need to to uh, to work together and communicate in order to make things work. And so, looking at predictive policing from a socio-technical perspective, kind of brings that to the foreground, right? It it really shows us that, or it, it puts the analytical emphasis on how different people and different organizational units deal with technology in different ways and how in order to produce the intended effect their work needs to become aligned and this puts a lot of emphasis on um, on translation right so translation is the the second key concept that we use in the book so basically translation um, as developed by Bruno Latour and, and others, um, means the alignment of you know, different knowledges and different um, communication practices within an organization um, with the aim of you know, making things and people work together to produce the intended outcome. And so the assumption here is that knowledge and power can only be created and transmitted within an organization if translation processes are in place between different units and different people. And so in our case, um, the translation circle actually starts with the production of data in the field, you know, where uh, a police patrol is called to a crime scene and uh, they file a report and that report then goes into the database and that forms the, the foundation for, for crime analysis. Right? And then you have the analyst who works with the software, um, creating very detailed situational insights, uh, kind of very specific time frames, very specific levels of risk, very specific um, spatial parameters, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this knowledge then, again, needs to be translated into something that is tangible for the people who do the, the resource management, right? who assign patrols, who uh, make sure that there's uh, patrol cars available, who make sure that you know, shift schedules um, don't conflict with, with other things. And then again, it needs to be translated to the people who do the actual you know, crime prevention work on the street level, the patrol officers. Um, and so there's a, a lot of steps involved here that really, um, I think, can help us to understand how a socio-technical perspective on predictive policing can help us understand why it is so complex and why it is, uh, you know, not as easy and straightforward as, uh, as uh, you know, media discourses and, and, and uh, you know, technology companies and policymakers sometimes suggest to us. Yeah. Do you, do you maybe have a, did you, during your research, did you run into a good example of how um, a technology or a tool such as precops or perhaps some other step from the process has been used in an in an unforeseen way uh, by the human actors, maybe. Yeah, I think um, one one of the one of the very I mean not 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 particularly surprising things, but one of the very pertinent things that we came across is um, 
what we um, deal with in chapter five, um, which is called humans and machines. Um, and this chapter five really details some of the you know conflict situations that we have witnessed between humans and uh, and the system in in in, uh, in air quotes. So that they tend to be you know. Uh, okay, again, I think I need to to do a little step back. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, when it comes to to the interactions between humans and machines, um, I mean, we actually know from uh, from engineering and design studies that uh, you know different levels of of automation require different ways of interaction between uh, humans and, and and systems. And so. Uh, for a long time, there, there was this assumption that you know the, the more you automate processes, um, the better this will be because you know it frees up resources for humans to do other things, um, and so on. But there has been a bit of backlash more recently, where people have uh, kind of come to the insight that more automation is not always a good thing, right? Um, automation is often kind of synonymous with black boxing, right? And if you have you know, complex analytical processes that you just completely delegate um, to an algorithm in a closed system, um, then this black box will not be easily understandable and it will not be easy to, to kind of retrace what's happening for the, for the human user. And we have really seen these, these, these kind of conflicts around the construction of knowledge between, you know, highly automated um, machine processes on the one hand and the need for for human control on the other hand um, in predictive policing so i mean obviously you know we're speaking about uh, law enforcement here we're speaking about security we're speaking about a very um a very sensitive and very um kind of you know sometimes even delicate um task that that the police do um and so i think from an organizational self-understanding uh most police departments do want to stay in charge, right? They want to know what's happening. They want to know on, you know, what what basis they are doing crime prevention, um, and they really want to be able to also um, kind of challenge the machine. So we we see often here a conflict between um, professional expertise and uh, also experience on the one hand. You know, police officers saying, look. Um, We've been doing crime prevention for, for 20, 30 years. You know, this is my my city. This is my neighborhood. Um, I know where the hotspots are. Um, and then on the other hand, you have this kind of, you know, rationalization process where now the, the idea is that through data, you get more accurate um, uh, forecasts. You can act in a, in a more flexible and dynamic fashion. And so this, this creates kind of a, a tension around the question of authority. So who should be... The one you know who gets to say where to go and what to do um, is it data? Um, is it the algorithm? Um, is it the analyst working with the software? Um, is it the patrol officer who has to enact these things on the street? Um, and then, of course, again we have another conflict um, that is more of a of a normative one. I think when I said police departments want to stay in charge of what they're doing, um, they always implement, at least in, in our cases, they always implemented predictive policing soft, uh, software in a fashion where the human would ultimately have to double check 
um, for plausibility and release the alert before it was enacted. Um, and this kind of created very interesting constellations about reasoning, right? Um, and again, you know, if the if the human user can't really understand how the system came to a certain conclusion, then this makes it quite difficult to challenge the system and to override it and to say, no, this is, you know, this is actually bullshit. You know, this this is this is you know, not something that we want to that we want to do because we know this is maybe an industrial area. Um, or you know this is an an, uh, an abandoned house or whatever. Um, so logically, you know, going there makes no sense. Um, but to to challenge machine recommendations is is actually quite tough because you know they they come with this this aura of uh, of neutrality and of, of rationalization and the the police officers we spoke with often lack the the vocabulary to really um, you know kind of get into an argument with the machine and so their challenges were often based on you know what they called gut feelings um, so it was a, a more um, a, a more intangible sense of, of experience um, that they would relate to and I think these are some of the the frictions and, and some of the you know unforeseen uh, things that that really can happen if you implement a technology into a into an organization that has been doing things in a certain way for a long time, and then you know technology comes in and technology is bound to to change these ways. And again, I think we know from from criminological research in the past that you know um, especially in, in kind of conservative organizations such as police organizations, um, there is. A tendency to to resist change, and to kind of you know um, argue with the machine in that sense, and to to override the machine. Um, but again, I think it it just brought to the surface very very interesting new constellations about um, how humans and in this case a, a software enter into a socio technical relation um, that produces peculiar effects sometimes. It's it's interesting that you bring this up because you. Um, you suggest that uh, that predictive policing is well as exciting and and as sensational a job as uh, is traditional policing, so to say. Um, but th this what, what you just described it, it it does does seem to suggest that the job of a policeman will definitely be changing if if there's more more of a predictive element into it. Um, also, because uh, in like an ideal case where where there's a lot of deterrence and very little um like crime scenes uh, so to say i mean the most extreme case would be that that no officer ever encounters a, a criminal or a kilo of cocaine or a gun uh, will will a future police force will that like exist of a few passive observers in the street maybe and like a horde of analysts in in the office or would that be an exaggeration yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of hard to to say where exactly we are heading, but um, this kind of prevention paradox that you mentioned um, that does play a, a huge role, right? And it it first and foremost it plays a role in the question of you know whether the software actually works, you know whether it does its job. Um, I mean, we we have been in a global pandemic for almost two years, and I think um, by now we we know a, a thing or two about the prevention paradox. Um, but it's 
in, in the specific case of predictive policing, it's, it's kind of tough to, to measure at the end of the day, you know, um, whether a crime has been prevented or not, because it is not a controlled laboratory environment, um, but it's a, a complex and messy world outside there. And uh, so the police literally have no idea um, whether a crime was actually bound to happen or, you know, whether or not for a gazillion reasons, possibly. And so, um, yeah, it's kind of um, a key question also um, with regard to, you know, politics and the media and, and the, the general public um, as to, you know, how or, or whether predictive policing can be framed as a success. Um, and of course, you know, you also have to see that considerable resources go into predictive policing, um, money-wise, time-wise, um, et cetera. So um, I think one, one interesting thing that we have seen in, uh, in evaluation reports is that, you know, some, some police departments um, have pursued a, a quite, you know, I would say, straightforward approach to evaluating um, predictive policing, uh, trying to argue with the numbers, um, kind of, you know, comparing uh, residential burglary stats from before they were using the software and uh, after they were using the software. Um, but then again, you know, these these kinds of, you know, numbers games, um, they are, epistemically speaking, a bit shaky. Um, and now the, the interesting thing is that other departments um, have chosen not to engage in the numbers games at all um, and rather to go for more process-based evaluations. Um, and again, I think, you know, we, we need to, to keep in mind that police organizations um, are not, uh, you know, uh, flexible uh, tech startups that can easily, you know, uh, be uh, managed in, in flexible ways. But, uh, you know, they, they are public organizations, um, which comes with a bit of, you know, kind of a built, built in slowness and, uh, and inflexibility. And uh, a lot of their digital infrastructure actually, you know, goes back to the late 90s and, and, and uh, early 2000s when we had the, the first, you know, digitization uh, wave in, in, in public administration and, uh, and security organizations. Um, and so speaking of process-based evaluations, they were trying to, to make sure that, you know, predictive policing was actually working. Um, and so the... The success criteria for them were much more low level and uh, almost banal um, as, for example, in um, does our database structure actually support the transmission, uh, the, the quick transmission and uh, analysis of data? Um, can we actually, you know, effectively communicate between different uh, divisions and di uh, different departments? Do we have the, the resources and the the practical flexibility to actually bring crime forecasts to the street. So these were criteria that some of the police departments used in order to measure the success in air quotes um, of predictive policing. And I think this is this is one of the, the most interesting uh, takeaways long term from the study is that um, these evaluations were used um, in order to justify um, what I would call larger digital transformation processes in the police. 
right? So I think predictive policing gave them a very good argument, um, you know, to to go up to to the command branch and say, um, look, we we need money because obviously, you know, the the, the future is going to be digital. Um, there's more and more data, um, the data that we produce ourselves, the data that we get from other sources, um, and now we we need the the infrastructures and also the the expertise and in terms of manpower to deal with these challenges. And I think um, if predictive policing has shown one thing, then this was that um, there's quite a lot of frictions and you know quite a lot of stuff that didn't work um, right from the start. And uh, this also you know draws of course attention to to more um, more high level problems. Both Switzerland and uh, and Germany are federal states, um, where you know on the on the state level. There's a lot of uh, a lot of competence and a lot of um, you know sovereignty when it comes to, to security, and so um, and this drew attention to to cross cross state data exchange and uh, you know you large like on a, on a regional level. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So particularly here in Switzerland, um, I remember we we had organized a, a workshop um, with. Uh, uh, Representatives from from different uh, cantonal police departments. Um, some of them had already been using predictive policing software, and some of them had not. And the ones that had been using software were like, okay, you know, um, we have a, a crime hotspot um, that kind of transcends cantonal uh, boundaries, um, but our data only reach to the border, right? Um, and so. We would need additional data that you know gives us the the full situational picture and you know really put us in a position to make uh, sensible forecasts. Um, but we don't have the data from from the other cantonal police force, um, and the current legal situation does not allow for automated data exchange. So I think a, a lot of these um, you know deeply deeply ingrained old problems have come to to be reproblematized. Through predictive policing, and so I think it has been, in a way, used as a um, as a wake up call. I would say, um, both to towards uh, policymakers, but also towards um, the, the command branch, that you know that there is a need to to reform um, police organizations to uh, to really kind of seize the opportunities that you know digital uh, digital data and algorithms uh, provide to them. Yeah, it's fascinating. The, the data and the algorithm—they're—they're they're not in a, in a vacuum. They are like inside an organization, inside a region, inside a big political system, and they all interact. It's uh, it's peculiar. Um, you uh, you say that um, I think that's that's in the introduction somewhere that uh, things are not as big data, so to say, as uh, as you might expect. Um, how, how how did you mean that? Yeah, so I think the you know the the idea of big data um, that's you know floating around uh, I think in, in, in everybody's head is that um, you know the the world uh, con- consists of data and you know we can get data from from all kinds of different sources and you know kind of draw them together and um, <clears throat> through advanced analytics uh, we can then create you know super super advanced insights. Um, because we can then all of a sudden recognize patterns that you know go beyond uh, our human understanding. 
Um, but at least in our case, um, what we studied, um, predictive, uh, predictive policing was, was rather small data, right? So um, the, the data that the police um, used for analysis were, in most of the cases, um, the data that they produced themselves from crime scenes, right? And so um, there's actually quite a limited number of data categories, such as uh, uh, the, the street address, um, so so location GPS data, um, the, the type of, of offense, um, the stolen goods, um, the, the modus operandi, so the, the ways in which uh, burglars um, got access to an apartment or to a house, um, and a, a few other things as well. Um, and I think one of the, um, at least, you know, kind of um, just discursively what is presented as an advantage um, with the pre-cop system was that there's only a, a very limited number of data points that you that you need to create a, a sensible forecast. And uh, so in that sense, um, it is very, very small data. But, you know, we should not confuse small data with, you know, no problems data. Um, there's actually a lot of um, problems also in, in police data. Um, and the police departments that we studied have tried to implement a lot of quality control measures in order to, to really uh, make sure that their data also give them, you know, a good analysis and, and good forecasts. Um, and I think there's, in terms of data quality, there's, there's of course, um, uh, lots of different challenges. So first of all, you know, um, it is a domain where limited uh, knowledge is kind of the rule. So, uh, I mean, obviously, you don't know everything um, right from the beginning. And you know, as, as investigations go on, um, there usually tends to be more data, more information. Um, and so data in the system needs to be updated. Um, but this, this can take time, right? This can actually take a couple of days or, or a week or so before the data gets updated. Um, and this creates a conflict with the idea of, um, of uh, near-repeat uh, victimization theory. Because there, you would assume that you know, the, the kind of follow-up offenses that occur, they occur in a very short time frame. So anything between 48 and 72 hours is a, is a sensible uh, time frame to act upon. But of course, you know, if you only get accurate data after a week or so, then this is already too late. And if you if you uh, go on to analyze data that is a week old, um, this gives you situational insights that, you know, cannot be enacted anymore. Yeah, this um, uh, this really made me, especially your chapter on speed, it really made me think on, um, I think it's, uh, the scene from uh, the archetypal pre-crime movie uh, Minority Report, uh, I think at some point uh, they get a prediction from one of the, the, the how do you call it, the, the, the prediction people. Um, at some point, the door is, is kicked like, uh, the door is kicked in right in time to prevent either a murder or some violent act. Uh, do, do you think uh, that despite the limitations that you just sketched, do you think that uh, it, the crime prediction is becoming more real-time or is there always going to be this lag? I think there are certain, you know, real-world problems that, uh, you know, go beyond the scope of, of algorithms and data. Um, 
so I mean, to, to answer the question straightforward, um, no, probably not. Um, I think, you know, real-time awareness is something that um, as a concept or an idea has been floated around for, for quite some time. And um, if I'm not mistaken, it actually originates in the military, um, you know, kind of the, uh, you know, real-time situational awareness in, in military operations uh, goes back to, to the idea of, of uh, network-centric warfare um, in the 90s. Um, and I think, it, you know, it, it, it might actually be a, a viable strategy in, you know, dynamic, you know, battle situations or something. Um, but in, in, in the actual, you know, real life in a, in a city, um, there's just, you know, too many, too many variables that factor into um, the datafication of crime, the analysis, and then the enactment. Um, you can only speed up things to a, to a certain point, and uh, after that, um, it just doesn't get any faster. And um, I think, you know, a, a very pertinent example here is that um, there's, a, there's a time lag between the occurrence of a burglary, um, the point in time where the, uh, the burglary is uh, kind of notified um, by the residents. Um, they call the police, the police come, um, the police create data, uh, the data goes into the system, uh, the data needs to be an, uh, analyzed, uh, a memo needs to be created. Um, and so, you know, all, all this takes time. But I think um, what's most pertinent here is that there can be a quite substantial time lag between the occurrence of a burglary. And, you know, if, if I'm away on, on holiday or a business trip, I only get home, uh, I don't know, five days later or so. Um, I find my apartment uh, broken into. Um, I call the police, and we don't know when the burglary actually uh, happened. It could have been five days ago. So, you know, and, and there's nothing that the police can do about these five days. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, real-world challenges in terms of speeding up that, you know, kind of really escape the means of, of, of data and algorithms. So they are not in the power of the police or, you know, any industry company for that matter. Yeah. Did you did you come uh, like during the whole research process? Did you come across particular um, maybe uh, success stories of predictive policing? Anecdotally, yes. Mm. Um, so I mean, I, I recall one one anecdote that uh, a senior officer from from one German police department told us, um, and so they they had been implementing predictive policing um, in their precinct, um, large German city, um, and they had been kind of making mixed experiences, I would say, um, and they couldn't really tell whether it was working or not, um, prevention paradox and all. Um, but this was during the summer, when, when was the, the migration uh, thing? Was it 2019, 2018? I don't, I don't actually recall. Um, so, in, in any case, Angela Merkel uh, opted to to open the, the German borders for, for refugees coming in. And uh, in that city, they had a, a massive influx of, of people. Um, and so all police resources were kind of, you know, drawn away from whatever they were doing at the time and uh, drawn into uh, the management of, uh, of refugee movement, basically. So... What happened was that 
in the city where they were running pre-corps, they had to, you know, kind of temporarily do away with all the targeted patrols. And what they immediately saw was an uptick in residential burglary. So they still, you know, they still had the data. They still, you know, came up with the um, with the analytics, and they still predicted that burglaries would be happening in certain spaces and certain time frames. Um, but they didn't have the means to to act upon it, and they saw these burglaries actually happening. Now, again, you know, this is anecdotal evidence. Um, it's not systematic, um, but yeah, I mean. Uh, these are the the little you know success stories that I think also internally with the police um, they're kind of used to 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 also convince people internally that what they are doing makes sense, right? Because otherwise, um, you know, again, you you kind of create that that basic conflict where you know why why should I do what a machine tells me I know better, right? And uh, so I think these these stories are also kind of mobilized to. Uh, to tell people that you know, look, it's it's actually it, it can make your life easier. Uh, it can aid you in your professional tasks. So you know, you you shouldn't be uh, you know fully opposed to to it, but uh, you know, you should give it a chance. Um, but yeah, I mean, these these kinds of anecdotes were, were told to us uh, at several occasions. Um, you know, you you have to take them with a grain of salt, I guess. Yeah, figure. So um, I would like to ask. Uh, one final question before we go, uh, because it's already been almost an hour. Um, the standard question, you already told me a tiny bit about it uh, right before the show. Um, what is it you, you are working on right now? Um, <laughs> right now, I'm actually um, I'm setting up a new research project on, on data quality. Um, and this is a direct outcome, of course, uh, from the predictive policing research project. Um, and we, we spoke about data quality for a bit. Um, there's many more, you know, super interesting aspects to, to data quality um, that concern, for instance, you know, classification systems, um, different databases, how they become consolidated, um, how they uh, also uh, try to come up with um, with automated ways of uh, checking databases for duplicates or for you know false entries um, and so on and. So what I'm what I'm setting up right now is a is a larger research agenda that um, hopefully, um, depending on funding, of course, will look into data quality issues in European law enforcement and uh, border control databases. So yeah, fingers crossed. Uh, that's going to be something that I will pay attention to uh, over the next three years or so. Fascinating. Let's hope that this will become the next book we can uh, we can talk about. Yeah, let's let's hope so. <laughs> All right. Uh, I want to thank you, Matthias, for, for being here today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, great, great conversation. Uh, enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> All right. See you. Bye bye.